As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So, Tracy, we're in the middle of our series, our series about episodes about bubbles. And of course, last week we had the uh, awesome one about the history of stock market bubbles. And now it's time to talk about uh, some bubbles that aren't directly, maybe not as familiar to people. Oh, okay. Uh, Well, I remember doing the catfish farming bubble. So uh, (laughs) I'm excited about what this one could be. Right. Like, that's the thing. So obviously people know about like the Internet bubble and a few, um, you know, maybe they know about the tulip bubble, which we'll also be talking about in a later episode. But as you pointed out, you know, several weeks ago, we talked about the bubble and catfish. It's a good reminder that bubbles are all over the place, everywhere throughout history and not typically in the sort of major areas that we think of. Yeah, and uh, I like the fact that we're actually doing this one because it follows on from the uh, stock market bubble one that we did last week quite nicely. It's something that actually happened, I think, in the 1920s before everyone got really into stocks. But people always talk about the stock market bubble of the 1920s. They kind of forget about this one. Right, exactly. So you're hinting at what it is. So as last week, we talked a lot about the stock market bubble of 1929. But a few years earlier in that decade, in the 20s, there was an extraordinary, fascinating bubble in Florida real estate. And of course, Florida has had numerous booms and busts throughout the years. That's sort of part of what makes Florida, Florida, including recently in the financial crisis, Florida got built up and then hit really hard. But uh, this is definitely one of my favorite bubbles. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of lessons for people even still today in analyzing how this uh, built up and how it eventually collapsed. We're going to have to rank our favorite bubbles on a one to 10 basis, Ooh. I think, uh, after we finish. That'll this be series. let's do that at the end of the series. I really like that. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to this one because I think we have a really good guest for it as well. Right, Joe? I'm very excited about our guest today. Today, we're going to be talking to Arva Moore Parks. She's a historian. She's an author. She's a Florida preservationist. Basically, the perfect person. She knows Florida probably better than just about anywhere else. She knows the story and probably the perfect person to glean some insight into this extraordinary period of sort of financial and American history. Great. Let's do it. 
And without further ado, let's bring in Arva. Arva, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I look forward to it. Before we get started with the, uh, you know, talking about this period in Florida history, tell us how you, your experience, how did becoming a sort of preservationist and historian with of Florida's history, uh, how did that become your main uh, interest? Okay, I was a, a school teacher teaching history at high school, and in the faculty room there was a notice of six credits uh, toward a master's degree uh, for teachers, and I applied and was accepted and was fortunate that Dr. Charlton Tabo, the major Florida historian of the day, uh, got me interested in doing a master's on the earliest community in South Florida, which was Coconut Grove. And that's where it all began, uh, and I never stopped researching after that. Arva, Joe knows that I like to start um, at, at the beginning of things whenever we talk about certain historical events in our podcast. So when we're talking about this uh, real estate bubble in Florida in the 1920s, walk us through how it actually got started. Well, we call it the boom <laughs> in Florida. We don't call it the bubble. It's the, it's the great boom of the 1920s. And in many, many ways, uh, George America, who I've done my most recent work, uh, moved into what was then called the back country and started selling lots in what he described as Miami's master suburb. And uh, he uh, had the first sales in 1921, and he, he expected a couple hundred or 5,000 people showed up. <laughs> And in many ways, that began the frenzy, I guess we should say, of buying up of the backcountry, buying up uh, different areas of South Florida. Um, the Everglades started at 27th Avenue, which is hard for people to believe today, uh, north of the Miami River. So all of that had to be reclaimed, uh, Everglades land. So uh, there was a lot of vacant land, and that made uh, Miami area the perfect candidate uh, for this bubble or boom as you're, uh, of the mm-hmm. 1920s. So you mentioned this character, George Merrick, who created this community, Coral Gables, and he you know, it was a real estate development. It had way more interest from buyers than he anticipated. What was it about his vision? What was it about his salesmanship for buying up real estate in South Florida that really attracted uh, people at such an intense level? Well, he was a master salesman and uh, did an enormous amount of advertising. Uh, his grandfather, Fink, um, had become very wealthy manufacturing a patent medicine called Fink's Magic Oil. And he taught George, and he was the one that convinced the Merricks to move to South Florida after they were in Duxbury, Massachusetts, after the terrible freeze. Uh, so they bought this land in the back country and actually uh, raised grapefruit. And uh, George sold grapefruit on, from a mule cart as a 13-year-old boy. and But he dreamed about what he might be able to do with this 160 acres, the original 160 acres that his father had bought. Before moving on, just to touch on something you said, his father was a salesman for sort of, it was called Fink's Magic Oil? No, that was his grandfather. Oh, his grandfather. And so when uh, we think of like in the old days, these sort of salesmen with their you know, now we call them snake oil salesmen, but these sort That's of like right. cure-all, cure-all tinctures and cure-all oils. One can imagine that these sort of the salesmanship involved in selling those old oils may have passed through to George to uh, sell real sell real estate in Florida as this sort of paradise. 
Plus, Grandfather Fink was a Methodist circuit riding minister prior to becoming a snake oil salesman. And his father uh, was a Yale-educated uh, congregational minister in New England. And the terrible freeze where they lost a child, Grandpa Fink had been to the brand-new community of Miami and told uh, Solomon and Althea, George's parents, about buying land in the backcountry. And so Solomon Merrick, the educated man, ended up buying this wilderness <laughs> Uh, and move out in what was called the back country of Coconut Grove. So walk us through, what was the sales pitch for buying um, Florida property at that time? Like, I, I imagine, you know, they were pitching probably to all types of people, not just people who were already in Florida. So what were they telling them to entice them to buy into that market? Well, um, speculation and a lot of open land. Uh, and George um Merrick, uh, I think, had as much to do with creating the boom nationally because he advertised in national newspapers about Coral Gables, and that was unheard of at the time. So people came down, not, and then other uh, vacant land, other homesteads. See, the whole area was homesteaded. Uh, that tells you how vacant, I mean, how unpopulated South Florida was. And so other owners of these 160-acre homesteads began to also develop them into subdivisions with romantic names, and they, too, began to advertise uh, in the papers. I find it interesting you're talking about uh, Merrick's father being a minister because Merrick himself, while he was selling property, and this is something that I learned recently, he recruited to help him sell um, property uh, William Jennings Bryan, one of the great orators of the era. He's famous, of course. He ran for president. He's famous for his cross of gold speech, uh, for his role in the uh, Scopes Monkey Trial himself, a religious minister. And so there seems to be this sort of crossover between the salesmanship involved in selling property as well as the sort of uh, salesmanship involved in uh, uh, preaching. That 100%. And uh, I think that Merrick, uh, again, was a genius when it came to, to marketing. And I think he learned a lot of it from Grandpa Fink and his father. Uh, and then hiring William Jennings Bryan was just unheard of at the time. So William Jennings Bryan became one of his major salesmen uh, to selling Coral Gables, both locally and nationally. So in addition to uh, these big name salesmen like William Jennings Bryan, you also had this network of young men uh, called Binder Boys, and they would go out and try to get people to put down payments on houses, right? Yeah, they would sell, quote, binders, which were like down payments and uh, for a certain price. So you would get a binder on a piece of land and you would pay for it later. And uh, they made a lot of money doing that. And unfortunately, a lot of them, that was a lot of that, the binders uh, helped create the the fall or the end of the boom because people were not able to pay them off uh, after uh, the stock market crash and after the bank failures and everything else. Uh, so the binder boys uh, not only promoted the boom, they also helped end it. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the, you know, some of the things that characterized you called a boom might call it a bubble, but in any boom, there's sort of glaring examples that in retrospect seems like people behaving completely irrationally. What were some of those things? Like what were sort of the price jumps that we would see on a plot of land from first purchase to flip to the next flip and so on? Uh, well, it would go 
out dramatically. As I said, the, the 160-acre homesteads were basically free. I think it cost about $15 to apply. And so a lot of the land began as homesteads, and then it was subdivided and sold off. Uh, so the, the price increase would be exorbitant <laughs> uh, to the owner in the beginning. And uh, as the boom progressed, the prices kept going up, up, up. I mean, in the Gables, that was particularly true. Uh, George Merrick wanted to build beauty for the middle class. Uh, and not, he did not start out building this grand fancy pants subdivision. That only happened because it was so popular and people kept paying more and more and more. The Blinder Boys, they became so prevalent that they had to be like, they were like just selling out on the sidewalk and selling out on the street everywhere. And they actually had to pass ordinances to sort of get them indoors so that people could get through the streets. Like how crazy and frenzied did the Binder Boys phenomenon get? Well, the downtown Miami era is where the Binder Boys would fill the streets. And uh, if you look at some of the pictures, all the many of the first high-rise buildings in Miami uh, were built in this era, too. So some of the early pictures of downtown Miami, the, the streets are just full of people, and the sky is full of uh, metal, you know, skyscrapers going up. So it was an incredible period of time. Uh, and people, as, as I grew up much later than that, but my people were still talking about the boom. And everybody knew they were talking about the 1921 to 1929, 28. And they were literally, when you say the streets were filled with people, it was literally people coming down from the rest of the country on the streets, meeting up with the Binder Boys and making real estate transactions right there and, and sight unseen, like not really knowing anything about the real estate they were buying? Right. Some of that was true. And uh, there were buses, though. George Merrick mm. had a fleet of buses <laughs> uh, that brought people in, even in from the north, into Coral Gables to sell them. So he, he tended to show them, and he created uh, – he had a the first professional landscape architect, Frank Button, uh, did big plans. And uh, when you go into Coral Gables today, these plans are still intact. So even though George Merrick only had eight years, uh, he planned. He had the first planned community, and uh, that's why it continues to be, you know, very valuable real estate today, even though it lost everything there for a while. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. I like the anecdote that the um, the binder boys, you know, when they would get paid a, a down payment on a property, it was all by check. So it would take them a while to get the actual money. Uh, so what they would do is they would take their um, their binders uh, over to hotels and restaurants and clubs and use those to get credit in the meantime until the check cleared. It kind of creates this nice image of the boom times and all these binder boys out partying in Miami with uh, money that they haven't yet received. It was a wild and crazy time, and uh, uh, there were nightclubs, and there were prohibition uh, <laughs> escapees, uh, even though prohibition you know, was in effect, not very much in effect in Miami. 
So I'm just curious, you know, when it came to the people who were actually buying the properties, give us some sense how many of them were in it because they were actually excited about the prospect of developing uh, this previously unused land, and how many of them were in it just because they were looking to make a quick buck? Well, I think there was plenty of each. Uh, it's hard to give exact numbers because some of the people that came down to make a quick buck kind of fell in love with the area and stayed. Uh, so a lot of, mm-hmm. or lost everything and had to stay. You had a combination of the two when the, uh, the boom ended and, uh, after the 26 hurricane. See, there was this horrible hurricane in 1926 and that pretty much stopped the quote boom. Uh, it just, practically blew Miami away. But um, George Merrick continued to pour his money into Coral Gables after the 26th hurricane. So you can't say that it completely stopped. A lot of people do. I I disagree with that point of view. Uh, It really stopped in 28, and they literally threw George Merrick out of Coral Gables. Uh, And he lost everything. He put every cent he had in trying to keep it going after the 26th hurricane. So the the bust uh, really came for sure by 28, 29. When the stock market crash, you know, happened to. And then that killed it off. I want to talk a little bit more about the bust in a second. But one thing I want to go back to, you mentioned that George Merrick uh, at one point got his own fleet of buses to bring people down, would-be buyers. Something that I read is that at one point, the craze to buy property in Florida got so intense that they actually had to limit the number of passengers who came in by rail and highway so that they could make room for food and other provisions to get into the state to feed the people that were actually there. It was getting so clogged. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, you are. Um, It's hard to even imagine today. Uh, We've never seen anything quite like the boom, as as we call it. We've had plenty of booms. In fact, I I was born here, uh, and, and I frequently say... I've lived in maybe seven different Miamis because we've had a series of these quote booms or uh, speculative period where we keep changing who we are. I like that. I like that idea that like the the boom and bust cycles are sort of almost definitional to uh, to what Florida is all about at this point. Absolutely, I, I would I would certainly agree to that. Particularly Miami, um, it's, it's been so true here in, in my life. I've been through booms and busts. <laughs> uh, I've watched it happen, you know. Arva, before we move on um, to the trigger of the bust, uh, what's your favorite anecdote from the boom period of this time? Is there one thing that sticks out in your mind? Well, um, no, it's really hard because I, I've just known so much. I, I think the idea that that George had the Spanish theme, it's, it's kind of ironic that today uh, we have so many Spanish speakers and the majority of people in Miami now are, you know, from, from Latin America. This certainly was not true. They were mostly what everybody called crackers, which were the Southerners uh, who populated Miami prior to the boom. And uh, the, the crackers were everything. And uh, one of the quotes that was in the New York paper is the only thing lacking uh, in Coral Gables were the Spaniards themselves. <laughs> and that's kind of ironic when you think about today, because George named all the street names, see, after Spanish and then later Italian cities. So he saw the history. He was a history book. He saw the history of Florida beginning way back with Ponce de Leon, as what we should be thinking about in that era, see, the boom time. Uh, so it, it's all very fascinating, honestly. All right, let's, uh, let's talk about the bad stuff and how it eventually came to an end. So you mentioned uh, 
the role that the 1926 hurricane had. The hurricane didn't kill the market outright, uh, but it was sort of the beginning of the end. How bad was the hurricane? Like sort of put it in context and then talk about you know, sort of the, the immediate hurricane aftermath for the market. Well, it's still um, it's down as one of the worst hurricanes in, in South Florida history. The 45 hurricane was another one that was a lot of flooding, but the 26 hurricane. And, and we in, in all our history say it really did stop the boom. Uh, so we went into the Great Depression before the rest of the nation. Uh, we led uh, – our Great Depression began really in 26, and it was George uh, uh, that poured his fortune. He, he was a uh, – today I'd be a billionaire. He poured his fortune back into trying to keep the, quote, boom or keep Coral Gables alive. So when uh, they threw him out in 28, uh, he didn't have anything. And when he died, he was only 55. His estate was less than $300, $400. So that gives you the idea of how the boom killed people's personal uh, money on the bust, rather, killed the uh, personal fortune of most of the people that had come down during the boom. Uh, so what happened afterwards? Because, you know, if I think back to the most recent uh, real estate boom that we had uh, in the U.S., uh, that would be just before 2007, 2008, um, the aftermath of that was... I mean, incredibly emotional for many people, and you had lots of people who were kicked out of their house. But if a lot of the Florida properties were being bought for speculative use, uh, you know, what happened? People just lost money, or were there people sort of out on the street in South Florida? Well, a lot of people did lose their homes, uh, and, and there's some similarity between the speculative booms of the, of the 1920s and, and the other booms. Uh, a lot of people got the idea that they could make money on Florida real estate. And so they purchased, as, as the prices went up, they continued to purchase, even with more expensive prices. And then when the next bust came uh, and the prices dropped, they, they, they couldn't pay the mortgage. And so they lost their homes, they lost their property. So it is definitely a pattern, boom, bust, boom, bust, boom, bust, in, in Miami history. And so George Merrick, you said he basically ended up broke. He was at one point the, the modern equivalent of a billionaire. He ended up with about $400. The timing of the when people sort of declared, in your mind, the boom, as you call it, did it end with the stock market crash of 1929? Did it end a little bit before that? When is the sort of period where you, know, you sort of bookend the boom? Well, it kind of ended with the hurricane of 1926. Uh, as far as most everybody but George. <laughs> and as I said, he poured his, his fortune into trying to keep Coral Gables going, and he did not succeed. Uh, he ended up actually being postmaster. Uh, he applied for the – he was very smart. He applied for the postmaster and got a job as Miami postmaster, and he was only 55 when he died. So uh, it, it's a very sad story in a way, but when you look at Coral Gables today, his planning uh, was brilliant. And uh, someone says you don't need a sign to tell you when you enter Coral Gables uh, because of his planning that he did back in the 1920s during the boom. You know, there's a quote that uh, I think is re I can't remember it exactly, but I read it somewhere recently. And they were saying, like, the key to a bubble is you have to have a, 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 a tremendous story that then just gets taken too far. But the fundamentals have to be really good. And what it sounds like, I think, with Florida, and part of the reason it keeps coming back, is that the fundamentals actually really are good. Like, it is a very yep. beautiful place. It's one of the, the some of the best weather in the entire country. The beaches are beautiful. 
Uh, as you mentioned, his community of Coral Gables was very well designed. So while it may have like gotten completely carried away and a bunch of people lost their heads with speculation, the key thing I think to go it seems to go back to is that the underlying fundamentals are in fact very strong, and he was not wrong to be you know sort of selling what he was selling. No, I think that one of the major influences was a lot of vacant land. Um, you know, people had not the, the railroad did not come down here until '96, and you think about the rest of the nation up to 1896, uh, and and there were you know when Miami was incorporated, there were 330 people here in 1896 in the city of Miami. So uh, it started booming. Uh, the railroad created maybe one of the first booms when it, it got here, and uh, then it just kept continuing. It's just a history of boom and bust. Uh, Joe, I think that's a nice place to leave it. I think that is a perfect place to leave it. I love uh, I'm really glad you brought in the railroads there at the end, because I do think that, you know, that that sort of a constant theme with bubbles is some new technology or so, to enable the sort of capital to flow. And obviously the railroad being a key source of capital from the rest of the country. Arva Moore Parks, it was delightful to talk to you. So great to uh, get your perspective and uh Really appreciate it. Well, I'm glad you're doing this because people need to understand that uh, we're we're the capital booms, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. The boom capital of the world. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. I don't know about you, Tracy, but I really like talking to Arva just now. Yeah, I I got to say, I feel like I know a lot more about Florida than I did when I started this podcast. Uh, but I thought the uh, the point that you were just making towards the end that, you know, fundamentally, there has to be a, a story to justify every bubble. I, th- I think that's a really important one. And you can see it in Florida. You know, you had the advent of the cars so people could actually drive down to Florida and see the beautiful weather and, you know, the coconut trees or the orange trees or whatever. Uh, you had a bunch of people who were becoming uh, newly wealthy and had lots of leisure time to take vacations. Uh, and you could see why they would be interested in Florida real estate. No, absolutely. Like every, you know, it's like you sort of sell Florida as this wonderful paradise within the U.S., but the truth is, it kind of is like it, it's beautiful and great beaches. And now, especially today, now that air conditioning is widespread, it's very, uh, very comfortable <laughs> to be in. And so, yeah, people got carried away, obviously, but the fundamentals are pretty great. And, you know, I remember last week we were talking to Scott Nations uh, and he mm. about stock market bubbles. And one of the things he said is that each stock market bubble kind of has a new financial contraption. So whether it was portfolio right. insurance in the 80s or the the trust funds of the 1920s. And so, you know, you think about the new technologies that were emerging for real estate, whether it was the emergence of these down payments, these binders, the trains that brought people in. It's sort of similar themes across all bubbles. Yeah, I think that's right. And also the network of uh, salesmanship that went yeah. into this, right? You had the newspaper advertisements. Uh, you had, uh, who was that guy? William Jennings Yeah, William Bryan. Jennings Bryan. That's one of my favorite little nuggets because everybody knows the Cross of Gold speech. Everybody knows the trial over the teacher who taught evolution that they made that play about. But the fact that as part of his career, one of the things he did was go to Florida and 
uh, hawk real estate during the 20s, I think is probably something that A, nobody knows, but B, really fits into this broader theme that if you can preach religion really well, you could probably sell property as well. Do you think many of the uh, the bankers around nowadays selling ETFs and things, think they have experience in preaching? I don't know, but probably they should consider recruiting from churches, uh, <laughs> you know, that there may be an untapped market of potentially good salesmen uh, out there. So maybe there's a, a future lesson for them. All right. Uh, shall we end it? Let's do it there. We have more episodes in our bubble series coming up and you'll have to uh, stay tuned to find out what they are. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you can follow our producer, Sarah Patterson, on Twitter at Sarah Pat with two T's. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.